This podcast is sponsored by O's. O's is a premium disposable vape product made with the highest pharmaceutical grade quality ingredients and comes in 12 delicious flavors like velvet tobacco, sweet apple, strawberry banana, grape ice, lemon tart, mango, and so many more. Right now, O's is offering all of my listeners 50% off their orders. So head on over to letsos.com and use my promo code HARMONY for 50% off your order. With O's, you'll look forward to your moment of zen. This episode is sponsored by Doom and Groom. Doom and Groom are a craft hair, skin, beard, and tattoo care company based in Denver, Colorado. Their oils, balms, butters, and pomades are great for use from head to toe, keeping your hair and skin healthy and hydrated. All of their products are unisex, dye-free, chemical-free, plastic-free, and organic. Head on over to doomandgroom.net and use my code HARMONYDOOM for 10% off your purchase. Once again, that is doomandgroom.net, promo code HARMONYDOOM. Hey there, and welcome to this episode of What the Actual Left. As always, my name is Harmony, and I'll be your host. To all of you who are listening for the very first time, hello and welcome. And to all of my reoccurring listeners, I know, I know, I didn't release an episode last week, and I'm really sorry. But we're here now, so let's go ahead and begin. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the movie Jeepers Creepers. If you've never heard of it, or you don't really remember it, let me give you a refresher. A brother and sister are driving home through isolated countryside for spring break. This is when they encounter a flesh-eating creature which is in the midst of its ritualistic eating spree. This creature is known as the Creeper. Now, I myself really do enjoy the first Jeepers Creepers. They kind of started making more afterwards and I'm not really a fan of the ones that followed. However, the premise is kind of a cool story, but here's why I'm telling you about it. Jeepers Creepers was inspired by a real-life crime. That's right. Now, not like what you see in the movie. There is no demon just going around eating people and wearing their skin. So with that, let me tell you all about Dennis DePew. Coldwater, Michigan. A lonely road outside of town. Ray and Marie Thornton went for a drive in the country, as they did every weekend. We were driving south on Snow Ferry Road, and all of a sudden a van was just on us and passed. Guy coming around. Jeez, must be in a hurry. On April 15th of 1990, Ray and Marie Thornton were driving along quiet Snow Perry Road in Coldwater, Michigan. As they were driving along Snow Perry Road, they were playing a game together that they had made up. In this game, they were trying to make words and phrases out of the number plates that passed them on the road. And for those of you that have seen the movie, it's just like that. This is when a green 1984 Chevrolet truck sped up and passed them at an extremely high speed. As soon as the truck went around them, the GZ on the plate made Mary say, geez, he must be in a hurry. The couple then continued to play their game as they rode along. However, it wasn't long until they passed an old abandoned schoolhouse. This is when they saw a man trying to dispose of a white sheet that was covered in blood. Marie saw a vehicle parked between the school and a large tank and knew immediately that it was the same truck that passed them. 
Now the couple didn't stop. They kept driving to find help and seek a phone. However, Marie did remember the license plate number thanks to the game that the two were playing. Now, their journey would be interrupted as soon as the truck started coming up behind them. The truck would follow them for several miles and eventually turned off the road. Ray and Marie decided they needed to make sure it was the same truck and they would check on the license plate. This is when they turned around and sought out after the truck itself. As they passed, a tall man wearing a white hat was standing at the back of the vehicle with the doors open, changing his license plate. As they passed by him, they saw that the passenger door was slightly open and they noticed that the interior of the vehicle was covered in a large amount of blood. So let's talk about what happened earlier that day. As we approached an old schoolhouse, I saw a man behind it and he had what appeared to be a bloody sheet. As we continued passing the school, I saw the van parked between the building and a big tank. On the outside, 46-year-old Dennis DePew and his 48-year-old wife, Marilyn, of Coldwater, Michigan, had a pretty comfortable middle-class life. Both of them had highly gratifying careers. Dennis was a state Michigan property assessor, and Marilyn was a teacher at local Coldwater High School. Together, they were raising three healthy children. But beneath the surface, smoldering tensions threatened to erupt at any given moment. After the kids were born, Dennis grew withdrawn to his wife and began to isolate himself from the family and accused Marilyn of turning the children against him. Their daughter Julie recalled that they did not fight with each other, in fact, they rarely even talked to each other at all. One time, Marilyn even told her co-worker Anne Dunkel that she was unhappy in her marriage. This brings us to 1989. After 18 years of marriage, Marilyn had had it and filed for divorce. When asked why she wanted a divorce, she said that the marriage was broken. She even told her lawyer, Richard Kolbeck, that she wanted to be more of her own person and raise her family how she saw fit. She felt that Dennis was trying to domineer her and control her and even run her life. It seemed as though Dennis did not allow her to make any of her own decisions. Dennis agreed to let her have primary custody of the children. And in regards to all of their assets and property, Dennis was willing to give her just about everything. Seems like Dennis is a good guy. However, as we've learned in all of the cases that I sit here and tell you about, looks can be deceiving. Dennis did try to keep his marriage intact. However, the divorce became final in December of 1989. He was granted bi-weekly visitations, but the children were often reluctant to even want to spend time with their father. He was also granted access to the guest house, which he used for both an office and an excuse to maintain control over his family. After the divorce, Marilyn changed all of the locks in the house. Despite this, however, one day she came home to find Dennis sitting on their couch. I did just say their couch, however, I probably should have said her couch, as the house was Marilyn's. She had no idea how he even got into the house because he didn't have access to the new keys at all. This is when Marilyn went back to her friend from work, Anne, and told her that she was starting to fear Dennis. Marilyn wasn't the only one talking to her co-workers. One day, Dennis went to his fellow co-worker, Jan Markowski, and he said that he was contemplating suicide, or even murder. And now, this brings us to the morning of Easter Sunday in 1990. 
the van appeared behind them again. It tailgated their car for almost two miles. I'm gonna start writing this stuff down. Finally, Ray turned off the highway. When he did, the van pulled to the side of the road. We decided to turn around and come back, see if we get a license plate number. We felt if we could get the license number, then we could turn into the police. The guy was acting very suspicious, and uh, we just felt that the authorities should be notified. Now he's in the back of the van. He looks like he's changed. He is. He's changed his plates. He was behind his van with the passenger front door open, and I saw that the passenger door was covered with blood. There's blood all over that door. What door? The passenger door. That guy has done something. He, he has. On that morning, Dennis arrived to his ex-wife's house to pick up his kids. However, Julie had already stated she didn't want to go with her father. And when Dennis got there, his son Scott said he didn't either. I'm sure you can imagine Dennis didn't take this very well. I mean, that's why we're talking about him. This is when Dennis decided to take his anger and rage out on his ex-wife, Marilyn. Right there in front of his three children, he began beating Marilyn senseless. He even threw her down the stairs, followed her down, and beat her some more. Their oldest daughter, Jennifer, ran out of the house to the neighbors to get help. This may have prompted Dennis to take action, and he decided to take his limp ex-wife's body and drag it out of the house. As he pulled her to the van, he told his kids that he was taking her to the hospital to get her help. And I'm sure by now you can guess he was lying. Dennis had no plans of taking Marilyn to the hospital. In fact, Dennis planned on finishing the job himself. Sheriff's deputies and the Michigan State Police immediately began to search for the couple. That very afternoon is when the Thorntons would come in contact with Dennis and witness his strange activities. They also found a blood-covered blanket in the yard of the abandoned schoolhouse. Immediately, the area was cordoned off and the authorities began to assume the worst, believing that Marilyn was probably dead. They did discover several fresh tire tracks that belonged to Dennis's van. They also found a large pool of blood that would turn out to be Marilyn's. The very next day, the authorities' fears would be confirmed. A highway worker discovered Marilyn's body just off a deserted road in Bethel Township. This was located midway between the abandoned schoolhouse and Marilyn's home. Despite being severely battered, bruised, and beaten, Marilyn had been shot once in the back of the head. Just days later, Dennis sent a series of wild, rambling letters to friends and relatives. In these letters, he tried to justify her murder. In one letter, he stated this, Marilyn had many opportunities to treat me fairly during this divorce, but she chose to string it out, trick me, and lie to me. And when you lose your wife, children, and home, there's nothing much left. I was simply too old to start over. Altogether, Dennis sent a total of 17 letters, and they were postmarked in Virginia, Iowa, and Oklahoma. This brings us to three months after the murder. Dennis sent copies of a 13-page letter to a number of friends and relatives. It was a chilling 5,000-word rationalization that takes liberally from the Bible, with statements like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a lie for a lie, a life for a life, and I realized that vengeance is mine. And it even closes out with, saith the Lord, but sometimes the Lord is busy doing other things. 
You know, every time I research these cases, I am blown away at people's justification. Later that night, Mary was shocked to learn that Hank Queen was really Dennis Depew, and he had just been featured on Unsolved Mysteries. Looking back on it now, I think that he was deliberately keeping uh, my uh, attention distracted in the kitchen so that I wouldn't see the segment and so that he could leave. So what happened to Dennis? Before I can tell you that, I gotta tell you about Hank Queen and his girlfriend, Mary. On March 20th, 1991, an episode of Unsolved Mysteries aired. In this episode, there was a segment dedicated to Dennis and his wife, Marilyn. At 8.30 on the night of this broadcast, Mary arrived home where she lived with her boyfriend, Hank. Hank was already there and his van was parked in the driveway, which to Mary was really odd. You see, Hank always parked in the garage. As soon as she walked in, Hank greeted her in the kitchen. He said that his mother was extremely ill and he needed to leave immediately. Hank also asked her to make him some sandwiches before he left for his trip. He kept trying to keep her out of the living room. She felt that something was going on with him but wasn't quite sure. He gathered up his clothes and some personal items. He then gave her instructions on preparing the food that he wanted for his trip. After he put his belongings in the van, he said goodbye to her and left. Mary believed that something was troubling him and she stated that she had a feeling she would never see him again. A little later that night, Mary was extremely shocked to learn that Hank was actually Dennis and that he had just been featured on the broadcast that was airing in their house. She believes that when he saw this, he tried to keep her out of the living room and from seeing the broadcast. This is why he kept her in the kitchen preparing food. Now here's an interesting fact about Mary. She was already a little suspicious of her boyfriend Hank. She even asked a private investigator to look into him. However, the PI could find nothing of interest at the time. One of Mary's friends called the telecenter and provided authorities with a Texas license plate number for Dennis's van, or as they knew it, Hank's van. Four hours later, Dennis's life would come to a violent end. Just across the Louisiana and Mississippi state border, Dennis would meet his fate. When Louisiana state troopers spotted Dennis's van, they attempted to pull him over. He led police on a 15-mile high-speed chase and broke through two police barriers. Warren County, Mississippi Sheriff Paul Barrett told his deputies that if the van refused to stop to just simply shoot out the front tires. However, they missed the front ones and got the back ones. Dennis traveled about half a mile before his van came to a stop. At around 4 a.m. after firing two shots through his windshield at deputies and another through an open window, he turned the gun on himself and took his own life. Sheriff Paul Barrett believes that he intended to die that night, either by the deputy's hands or by his own. Dennis Depew was the very first fugitive ever featured on Unsolved Mysteries broadcast to commit suicide. What the hell was he doing? Dump something down that pipe. Wrapped in a sheet. Wrapped and roped in a sheet. Wrapped and roped in a sheet with red stains on it. Just get us out of here. And there you have it. The real life case behind the movie Jeepers Creepers. Although Dennis DePew is not some evil entity trying to wear someone's skin like a suit. 
No, Dennis Depew was not a real-life Buffalo Bill or demonic entity, but he was a truly bad man. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. That always feels so weird to say as I talk about some pretty grim shit on here. But nonetheless, I hope you enjoyed. And again, I'm sorry I did not release an episode last week. I promise I will be back for sure next week. So, until the next episode of What the Actual F, I love you guys, stay safe, and I'll talk to you next week.